0: So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. The last time we saw basically a wrap-up of Luke chapter 13, which Jesus focuses on the Kingdom Road and several illustrations. Today, first of all, we're going to see that all of Luke 14 is unique to Luke. If you have a study Bible, you won't see any parallel scriptures to the other Gospels. We'll also, uh, we see Jesus as, and I've kind of labeled him this in this message, as the great cardiologist. In that, in order to be on the kingdom road, the heart must first be prepared. And that's what we'll see in this message. Starting with verse 1. It says, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. So you see, again, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to eat bread on the Sabbath few things here. This particular Sabbath, or there was the, uh, the house he was in was a ruler of the Pharisees. They had a hierarchical system in that religious system. So if this guy was a, a big guy. He was a top, top dog, so to speak. And also, it wasn't uncommon. Actually, it was very common in that culture to, after a service, after the post-service message, uh, they would have a, a fellowship. So, and it says, uh, he's, Luke says, and behold, another, you know, he says, and behold. It's like another afflicted man was there. What a coincidence. You wonder why Jesus kept going to their houses, right? Knowing the outcome. He knows what's going to happen. And you wonder why they kept inviting him over. So you wonder why on both sides they kept repeating this practice of having Jesus come over. On a Sabbath, somebody's sick. He heals them. You know, you see so many instances in the scripture. Uh, I mean, they had plenty of evidence against them over the years, no doubt. But you wonder if some of these religious leaders felt that they had to toe the party line, so to speak. But in their hearts, the word of God burned in their hearts and they longed to see if these things were so about Jesus. See the power of God. You kind of see that in John chapter three when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He's a teacher of Israel, Jesus says. But he comes at night to hear Jesus. He comes to learn from him. He comes to ask him questions that he probably couldn't ask in his peer group because it would show that he, he had an interest, right? But it reminds me about when you witness to a peer group and they appear to ignore you when their friends are around. But when their friends aren't there, they're more apt to come up to you and ask you questions or ask you to pray with them. That's happened to me on the police department a few times. And uh, I remember this one particular officer, you know, it was, I guess it's cool to kind of bust my chops about the whole Christianity thing, this was a few years back and uh, nice, nice guy, get along well with him. Well, one day we go to a burglar alarm, and I'm in uniform, I'm in a police car, same with him. Now, if those of you who know this area, it was the burglar alarm was right off of Dean's Lane, or it was on Dean's Lane right off of Route 1, so it was in a very heavy traveled area, right? So we both go, we park our cars tactically across the street from the house, so there's really no shoulder, so we're kind of out really in the street. I get out of the car, he gets out of the car. And I said, you ready? I was going to talk to him about what we were going to do. And he kind of looks at me, and something's not right with his countenance, and I can't put my finger on it. And he he just can't talk. I said, listen, why don't you stay here? I'll go handle the burglar alarm. We'll talk when I come back. Uh, I, I could tell he was not in the right frame of mind. So I go in, handle it. It's a false alarm. I come back and talk to him. Now, mind you, where we are, right? Everybody can see us. And I'm in the street, and I'm talking to him. I said, what's the matter? And he starts trying to talk. And then all of a sudden he starts crying, right? Tears are streaming down his face and I'm thinking, what do I do? (laughs) So I'm like, well, the only logical thing to do is give him a big hug. (laughs) So I I embrace him. He embraces me. His head is on my shoulder and tears are streaming down my uniform. (laughs) Can you imagine what the people thought as they were passing by us? It just goes to show you things aren't always what they seem. But this guy was, and it's, it's common, you've all faced it. The people are different when they're in their peer groups and then when they're alone with you. You know, you hear all these stories. You, what you're saying to people, although it seems like it's falling on deaf ears, Isaiah 55, I believe it is 10 to 11. Uh, God's word accomplishes, it always accomplishes something. It's doing something in people's hearts. So... Uh, we're going back to this, uh, this, this guy with this affliction in Luke chapter 14. This guy has dropsy. What's dropsy? You know, first time you hear it, you think it's something. He's got slippery fingers and he keeps dropping stuff. But that's not what it is. Uh, dropsy comes from the, the Greek word hudropikos, which is where we get hydro, which is where we get water. A lot of the Greek ends up coming out in the English. And basically what this condition was, it was a type of edema, which is a medical term for an abnormal accumulation of fluid in the tissues of the body, which is a symptom of a disorder such as congestive heart failure or liver or kidney uh, failure. And again, I'm just speculating here. But this condition would be characterized by swollen extremities, difficulty walking, and general malaise. So this would be obvious. If this guy had dropsy, people could see that he had this this condition, right? So in verse 3, it says, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It says he answered them. And I looked up that word. It means answering. He was answering them. But the point is, did anybody see a question in here? I didn't. It's like he was answering their thoughts, because we saw that. He could read their minds. He was answering their motives. He was answering their hearts. That's what the Lord does. And, and like, like I said, he is the great cardiologist. He knows that our hearts are desperately wicked. We have a heart condition, and it's called sin. It's called rebellion. Jeremiah 17:9 through10 speaks about how wicked our hearts are. And in every situation, Jesus has the problem to clear up that heart condition. In verse 4, it says, but they kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. It's funny, whenever Jesus fellowshiped on the Sabbath, there was always, without fail, there was always two things going on there. There was two groups, religious leaders and sick people, right? Every time he fellowshiped on the Sabbath. And in verse 5, it says, then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? So he's answering them again. On the Sabbath, you couldn't do work. You know, God's law was like you you had to rest. You had to cease from work. It was a day to reflect on God. It was a a day for worship, right? And it was uh, very simple. God made it simple. But over the years, the religious leaders took it, and they had different schools. You know, over the years, they had... Uh, there was the Hillel school, there was the Akiva school, there was the Shammai school. And each one of these rabbinical schools taught something that could be diametrically opposed to each other. They taught different things about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. But there was a provision for certain activities. Saving the life of an animal was one of them. Feeding and watering the animal was another. But healing was considered a practice of medicine. And it was not they didn't allow it on the Sabbath. But they were just so... Myopic, You know, they couldn't see past what was going on in front of them. What was going on was it was a miracle. It was the finger of God. But their laws were so constrictive that it didn't provide for that on the Sabbath. Imagine that. In essence, they could show mercy to a beast of burden, but not a human. So many people are trapped in a religion where there's so many rules and practices and traditions over the years that it gets confusing. And it kind of takes you away from that relationship with God, except you know, and it's supposed to bring you to God. That's the whole plan of God's word, to bring you to a closer relationship and understanding to him. I did, um, I performed a wedding yesterday, and uh, it was amazing. I mean, I used scripture. I explained what the relationship is to a husband and a wife. I explained the relationship between us and our creator, the relationship to Jesus and us. You wouldn't believe all the feedback I got, uh, the great feedback by people. It's like the word of God was just there. And again, it wasn't me. It was that they were like, wow, we've never seen a wedding like this. It, you made it all clear to us. It was almost like a counseling session in a sense that people who haven't heard the scripture before. But, uh, you know, that's what it's all about. God's word is to help us to bring us closer to him. In verse six, it says, and they could not answer him regarding these things. So. This is a little bit different than Luke 13, where it was another Sabbath and another synagogue and uh, the religious, the uh, synagogue ruler was indignant. He was really angry with Jesus because it was because he healed. In this instance, they don't really answer him. You know, these guys don't argue. It is possible that they accepted what he did. Maybe they pondered it. Maybe he was making a difference in some of their hearts. Again, I've said before, we like to characterize all these Pharisees as bad guys, but I believe, without a doubt, that some of these guys, their hearts were affected. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The priests were part of the Sanhedrin, or the, the ruling body of the Jewish people. And they were, by and large, the ones that uh, consented to crucify Jesus. But over time... It started working on their hearts, some of the things that Jesus said, some of the things that Stephen said, the first Christian martyr. And over time, these guys, their hearts started to change, and many of them became obedient to the faith, the Bible says. So the big question is, are we making a difference? I guess it would be awful if uh, this church just turned into a big social club where we only referenced the Lord on Sunday. That would be pretty sad. You know, I tell you, I love to answer Bible questions. It doesn't matter where I am. I I never take a day off from from the Bible. This is my day off. Don't ask me any Bible questions. You know, it's who I am. It's part of me. And it should be part of who we all are. And seeing fruit here uh, just encourages me to be assured that I'm doing the right thing and to keep going. What about our place of employment? I was uh, sitting in the station office a few weeks back and maybe just reading a book and it's a little office that people come into the police station and you answer their questions or take reports. And one of the maintenance guys who I don't know very well, tall guy, real deep voice, he said, Joe, you're doing a good job over there. And I'm looking, I'm just sitting here reading a book. He goes, no, I've heard good things about that church. It's cool because word gets around, you know? And the question is, are we making a difference in our places of employment? And that's that's very important. I mean, am I making a difference to the fellow officers that I work with? If I'm not, I've really got a question. What am I doing wrong? You know, we should be making a difference. Um, as a rookie, I was told this is a 24 seven job, this police job. I'm like, wow, this is a cool job. 24 seven. I'm a cop. You know, when you go into a place to eat, you always sit with your back towards the wall and watch people coming in and out, even if you're off duty. I tell you all these weird things about being a police officer. But I got news for you. Being a Christian is a 24-7 job. It it, it should always be, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, that that should be our moniker, you know, who we are. I'm a Christian. So, um, and, and this is a cool job if you're really into it. So the question that Jesus had to them is, you know, your law, your law, not God's law, your law, your rules, your regulation is a perversion of God's original plan for the Sabbath with your stringent can and can't do's list. It was so tight with that list. But have you considered, in essence he was saying to them, have you considered where, where showing love, showing compassion to your brother or to your fellow man, your neighbor, fits into the law. It, they couldn't, if it didn't fit into their, their columns, then it, it didn't compute with them. They couldn't get it in there somewhere if it didn't fit with their rules. So in this section, Jesus gives his listeners their first heart checkup to see if there's any compassion in it. Jesus may have healed a man, again, it's speculation, with congestive heart failure and let him go. But the question is, did any of the religious leaders get healed of their heart condition? A physical healing is great, but a spiritual healing is far better. Is your heart changed by the word of God? That's the question. And in verse 7, it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, and and I'm going to read that in a minute, the next thing is the parable of the ambitious guest. That's the next block that we're going into. Remember, he's still at a dinner engagement. And here, again, the great cardiologist addresses the dinner guest, in essence, addressing the heart again to look for any pride or self-aggrandizement. You now to see how great they thought of themselves. So he starts in verse 8. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. At a social engagement, whether it's a wedding or a dinner feast, the position of prominence was at the ta- same table as the host. And if someone thought more highly of themselves, they would take the closest spot to the host, position of prominence. But how embarrassing would it be if the host said, no, 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 no. you're in the wrong spot. And because of presumptuousness, the host says, sit over there, further back. i got somebody more important that gets to sit here. How embarrassing would that be? Some speculate that at the Last Supper that Peter finally got it. And we we talked about this during the Easter service, but the tables were called the triclinium, where they were actually three tables kind of put together in a U-shape, right? And the host would sit at the center. And during the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And it says that he leaned on John's bosom. So John was next to him. And Peter motioned, like, who is it? Who are you talking about? Who's, Who's the one, right? Peter was trying to get the Lord's attention to try to find out who's the one who's going to betray him, but he had to motion to him because he wasn't close to him. So some speculated that Peter finally got the thing of humility and he sat at the furthest end of the table, you know, putting himself in a more humble position. Isn't that interesting? It's speculation, but it kind of makes sense. But what prompted Jesus' question here about this whole jockeying for positions? Probably his observed, his observations of those religious leaders and people jockeying for the most prominent positions at the function. And they thought very highly of themselves. Remember, this is the home of one of the chief Pharisees. You gotta make a good impression with this guy. You make a good impression with this guy, you'll probably be elevated in status. You ever, you ever stop and think how funny it is and, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the police officer in me, but you observe people. You ever observe any organization, wherever you work, right? You got this company and the CEO or the president or the head guy comes in, right? You ever watch how people's behavior changes? They're not the same person that you worked next to the cubicle. All of a sudden, they become super employee, right? So it's just kind of funny, and it just, you know, you get to see, we we see these things in our own lives, and we have to kind of project that to what was going on at the time. Verse 10. It says, But when you were invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, So that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Practically and spiritually, it's better to think of yourself less, less of yourself than more of yourself, which is kind of hard for us to do because it flies in the face of contemporary public opinion. You know, in our society, it's all about you. There's magazines called Self, Us, you know. Uh, I'm I'm surprised they don't come out with one that says it's all about you, right? But that's what our society tries to teach us. Self-esteem is important. You know, you're the most important person. I'm not going to sing that song again that I did a few services back. But many problems that we face as society have to do with the result of people who think too highly of themselves. We become a nation of individuals, if you think about it. Remember, look, look around. We become a nation of individuals and that's dangerous jfk in his inauguration speech had that famous line that people quote for decades to come he says ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country we don't believe that anymore as a society we want to know when we're going to get some payback when we're going to get some rate of return as a society that's what we're looking for right but this is from Jesus' words. It's from the mouth of God. He says, He rewards the humble, not the proud. The, scr- the scripture is replete with that. God does not reward the proud. He rewards the humble. I remember uh, when I had the Bible study on Sunday nights, I would ask Pastor Lloyd uh, for advice. And he's, he's a man of very, very few words. And often he would say, I would say, I would look for some deep theological nugget from him to help me to, to, to encourage him to go on. And I'd say, what should I do? And he would say, stay humble. That's all he kept saying, stay humble. But humility is a funny thing. And I'd be like, that's all I got from him? I was looking for something more, you know? Stay humble. But humility is is a good thing to have. I mean, it's very important. And the funny thing about humility is it's elusive. When you think you have humility, you've lost it. You know, it, it escapes you because you think you have it. It's like saying, I've arrived. I've really become humble, you know? What what are you doing? You're being prideful about it, right? So it's a funny thing. But God's not impressed by anything we can achieve. When I became a pastor, God didn't become impressed with me. He didn't say, well, you made it through the police academy. That really did something for me. But now now you're ordained and you're a pastor. I'm really impressed with you, Joe. You know, God doesn't get impressed by us. You know, he's not a respecter of person. Uh, The scripture is clear about that. We should be respectful of others, but not in awe of anyone. Who do we think, you know, in our minds, and somebody says to the average person, who do you think will be at the head table of God's great feast, right? Oh, it certainly must be a pastor who's amassed a 15,000 plus membership. Uh, A pope, a king, a president, those are the ones, an ambassador, you know, somebody from the United Nations. Those are the ones who have to be at God's great feast, right? Hardly. I would say that it's probably some missionary who spent his or her whole life sharing the gospel in word and deed in some remote village in Central uh, America, Asia or Africa to the chagrin of many. Verse 12, Jesus says "Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is going from addressing the guests to addressing the host. So everybody gets a little bit of wisdom there from him. In a sense, he's trying to teach the teacher. But why does he do this? Well, probably because of the good old boys club that was going on back then. Everybody, you take care of me, I take care of you. It's like that. You've heard that, I'm sure, plenty of times. One hand washes the other. Somebody does something for you and then they expect you to do something back for them. One hand washes the other. You know, everybody's taking care of each other. You know what? It kind of sounds like uh, politics in New Jersey. One hand washes the other. Um, One of the reasons... I don't think, but I'm sure that our taxes are so high because of all the political favors that are cashed in. Uh, You you see, if you ever watch the, if you ever watch C-SPAN, when they put something into law, you have all these senators and congressmen get together and uh, if they need some votes, they'll go, hmm, you know what? I need in my state a bridge that needs to be built over a pond and it's going to be a $4 billion bridge and you can't get my vote unless you Kind of vote on this bridge in my home state because he's going to take care of people that have taken care of him. And then, you know, there was an organization that uh, came out that listed all the the wasteful spending in government. And it just keeps happening and happening and happening. That's why we can't get control of our taxes because everybody's taking care of each other. Don't think that if uh, there's a political candidate who uh, certain groups are trying to help to get in, that once he gets in, they're not going to be knocking on the door expecting the favor to be returned. So this is kind of, you know, again, everything, nothing's changed in life. People don't change. 2,000 years ago, it's the same today. Somebody once said, it's the same circus, but different clowns. Really? There's no difference. But even a lot of Christians do the bartering thing with each other. And that's a good thing. But if that's all that you do, then you're not heeding Christ's call to bless others without being concerned for payback. We too often expect the returned favor. We support, and he's been up here a few times, uh, a 20-year-old missionary to Guatemala. And uh, last week, I had the good fortune to actually sit with him and talk to him for a while. And he said, I love the Guatemalan people. You know, I speak the language. I'm part of the culture. He goes, but I'm not a Guatemalan. He goes, they will never accept me, no matter how many years I'm there. Uh, And he says, when I come back to the States, I have no identity it's different here. It's like a different world because that's my home. So this guy is like a man without a country. But his life is all about helping other people. And I've got to tell you, you know, I have the humility enough to, to look at him and go, he's a better person than I could ever be. You know, that's, that's tough to do. You know, give, just give your whole life away to serve the Lord. So it takes a special type of person. How often do we come out of our comfort zones to bless somebody who's not in our loop? Because we all have a loop, don't we? We're creatures of habit. We have a routine we get up in the morning we do things a certain way certain greeting rituals with our spouse whatever it is we have a routine we have a loop and sometimes we're so in that loop it's like a computer loop that you just don't get out of it you know you don't break out of that loop to bless other people you know how often do we bless someone and not expect it back Supporting a missionary or support organization to help the poorest of the poor in the world is certainly a good way to assure that you can't get that help back. You can just It can only go one way. And in verse 14, he says, he says about, you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, and you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What we're doing here is we're emulating Christ to us. Christ gave us something that we can't repay. He gave us salvation. We could work for it. We could pray. We could read the Bible. It doesn't matter. We can never repay Jesus Christ for what he did for us. So in a sense, he's asking us to emulate everything that Jesus did. He asks us to emulate what he did. Right. But one day there will be a day of reward. But if you look at Revelation 410, the elders take off the crowns that they've achieved over their lives uh, in in having the gifts that God's given them. They take off the crowns and they, they prostrate themselves and they put the crowns at the Lord's feet. So even anything that we do do, anything that we get rewarded for, it goes back to Christ anyway. God wants us to bless us in the area of, in a sense, where Jesus said this before, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Uh, Sometimes there's a, a test that we could test our own hearts as Christians when we do something really neat and monumental, maybe for somebody. The question is, or the test is, can we sit on it? Can we keep quiet about it? Or do we have to trumpet it to other people? Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of things, look, if we're always trumpeting what we do, we, uh, people say you lose your blessing. Uh, and, you know, the Bible uh, alludes to that also. But uh, is there some things that we do that the Lord leads us to do that we could just keep quiet about and not talk about? It's a test, right? So we see another heart check here to see, in a sense, how much plaque is built up in our hearts in the form of pride and self-serving. What do we think of ourselves? You know, at a function, sometimes people behave as if the party hasn't started until they arrive. kind of reminds me of that Carly Simon song. I think it was Carly Simon, You're So Vain. Remember that song? You probably think this song is about you. Come on, don't make me sing it. I know you know it. It's years ago, but I know you know it. Or uh, another pastor said, he goes, when you see a group photo, who's the first person you look at in the photo? It's yourself. Where am I? Where am I? Oh, there I am. And even if you say, oh, I look terrible that day you really, you really like yourself because you're, you're saying, I normally look better than that in that picture, right? So we're, we're so self-centered, it's sickening. You know, we have to fight against that self-centeredness, like the world revolves around us. I mean, if life is so much about building monument, monuments and empires around ourselves, and it's the only people that we're looking to help are those who do something for us, we've missed the boat. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. So in verse 15... He says, now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is the parable of the great supper where Jesus, again, as the great cardiologist, addresses presumptuousness, sense of entitlement of heart. It seems when you first read this, that this guy was getting it. Wow, he got it. Light bulb went off, right? Until so you see Jesus's response to his comment in the next parable. Verse 16, then he said to him, a certain many, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. God's invitation to salvation and all that comes with it. You could say that this is the marriage supper of the lamb, this great, uh, this great event that this man is getting ready. And uh, he's inviting people to come to it. So we can look in Revelation and see the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great, um, you know, celebration. I talked about the wedding uh, yesterday. I had such a great time at that wedding. Uh, and it just was great. Good people, good food. And, you know, events like that, you just kind of want to stretch them, you know. And, and I just see that as the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we go to heaven and we meet people from different you know ages imagine meeting somebody from like a thousand BC and talking about different cultures and just spending a great time fellowshipping with that people uh, it's just a fun thing to do in, in our society or where, where we live and we're confined to time when the event is over the only thing we have left is the memory but I don't think it's going to be that way in heaven because there's no time now don't ask me how that all works but it's going to be very interesting it's going to be uh, just a great celebration worshiping God He's always going to be the center of attention and uh, we're just going to have a blast, I think. But you have this, this uh, thing that, that this man's getting ready, this event, and he wants everybody to come. He says, all things are now ready. I believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb was an event that, uh, that happened, you know, even before Christ came to earth. It was something that was preordained and all things are now ready. I believe that the invitation started with John the Baptist, remember, calling people to repent. He was getting them ready. He was preparing them. And the second invitation ended with Jesus Christ. His call also. John prepared the way, but they both called to repent and to receive Jesus, you know, receive the kingdom of God. And in verse 18, it says, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask that you have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to test them. I asked that you have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So you go through some of these excuses and that's exactly what they are. They're excuses, as we'll see. A piece of ground. Nobody back then would buy a piece of ground because it was in an agricultural society. They wouldn't buy a piece of ground to farm and to raise raise livestock unless they saw it first. They would want to make sure that the ground was conducive for what they were looking to do with it. So that's kind of a lame excuse. If you were buying a piece of ground, you would have looked at it first. The same thing with the team of oxen. Nobody would, would uh, spend so much money to buy a team of oxen and then get there, and they're all old and shriveled and they can't move, you know. So the people, if you were buying a team of oxen, you know, just like when you buy a car, you want to test drive it. Nobody buys a car without test driving it, or I hope you don't, because you never know what you're going to get. So he would want to make sure that these oxen uh, were in good shape to do the work that he needed them to do. And the last thing is, I have married a wife. Well, I'll leave that one alone. Maybe he was looking for a little alone time with the missus on that day. I don't know. But he certainly could have taken her to the wedding with him or the feast because they're starting the rest of their lives together, right? So what's the hurry? So these excuses are basically broken down to, if you think about it, life's pleasures and relationships that hinder us from a relationship with God. These were all excuses, not to walk with God. And I've heard all the excuses. When you talk to somebody about the Lord, they, you answer all their questions. It makes sense to them. You know, you could see the interest there, but there's excuses. Well, I have to finish college first because there's a lot of exams I got to take. Well, I have to get this job first. Well, I have to, you know, we're going to get married soon. What does it matter? Jesus can be a part of that. And people like try to compartmentalize it. It doesn't work. And in verse 21, He says, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded. And there is still room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now, some people think that this was a picture of Israel in the sense that they were God's chosen people and they were given first shot at choosing the Messiah. Uh, They they had the first shot of being invited uh, wholesale because Jesus says he came for the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, he said that. And they made excuses for why they couldn't come to the Messiah. Now he's going to, you know, into into the area to look for the Gentiles, the the prostitutes jesus came for the tax collectors and i say the perceived dregs of society because as human beings we look down on other people but god doesn't look at them like that so when i say the dregs of society it's from our perspective it's a sinful perspective but you know god looks at them differently of course with love so going to the invitation in verse 22 key things uh he does two key things here in verse 22 it says there is still room And in verse 23, it says, go into the highways and byways. And to me, this shows that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The kingdom of heaven is open to all. And we've said this before. Uh, You know, the Jehovah Witnesses teach that there was only 144,000 spaces in heaven, and they're all filled. It was a first-come, first-served basis. So even now, if you convert to Jehovah Witness, and you're a good Jehovah Witness, you can't get to heaven because it's filled. Uh, the best you can hope for is to spend eternity on earth. And I'm not being facetious, that's their doctrine. Uh, But obviously, God is saying here that even with the highways and byways and all different people called to come, there's still more space. So heaven is just, there's always space for one more person. So it's clear from 24 also that if God's call isn't answered, there's no hope. So this last block of scripture, uh, the great cardiologist teaches on discipleship he says to them, basically, are you ready to be my disciples? Is your heart truly ready for the challenge? 25 through 26, it says, and great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Now, if any of you here are new today, you might be like, well, I've never heard that before from Jesus. Uh, It's, some of these things, this is a, what they call a Jewish hyperbole. It was a, an embellishment to prove a point. So, uh, there was a lot of things that were cultural back then, and unless you understand some of the cultural overtones to it, you could get a misrepresentation of what he's saying. Like the rabbis back then would answer a question with a question, and Jesus often did that. Something was posed to him, and he would ask a question. So it was just a cultural type of thing. Jesus doesn't want us to hate, except to hate sin and evil, but he's saying to them, I mean, get this clearly, you can't truly be my, be my disciples if there's any human relationship that is causing a hindrance. That's clear. In verse 27, he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. You know, sometimes people won't even bear responsibility for themselves, let alone bear a cross. And we've covered this prior this is an attitude of a man condemned to death, uh, giving up your life to follow the Lord. And in the Easter service, we went through the horrific procedure of crucifixion. Uh, Jesus said, you know, take up your cross. Did he want them literally at that point to all get crucified? Obviously not. That's not what happened in the, uh, in the story here. But, uh, you know, they did give up their lives to follow him. And ironically, many of them were crucified. But uh, crucifixion was an awful form of punishment. And uh, you, what, would, what would you think when you were being crucified? I'm going to die soon. So your life didn't really mean much to you at that point because it was going to be over soon. So Jesus was saying that uh, when you follow me, you pretty much have to give up everything in your life that's a hindrance to following me. Otherwise, you can't follow me. It's all got to be cleared away. It doesn't mean you can't be married. It doesn't mean you can't own a home. You got to understand what he's saying here. Uh, and here he gives two real-life examples of counting the costs prior to this great undertaking of discipleship. Verse 28, it says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for a condition of peace. So, in the in the first example, <laughs> the tower—I think of the Leaning Tower of Pisa—wasn't that a problem with the foundation? It started kept leaning and leaning over time. But Jesus is saying, and I, and I believe that the foundation here is Christ. It's not over, at least said, but you can't build a building. You can't build anything spiritually, unless the foundation is Christ. That's your solid rock foundation. Otherwise, everything else is sand and your your structure won't stand. So, uh, you know, any building project couldn't be undertaken without Jesus as the foundation. The second thing is, and again, he speaks about literally a a condition of war. If you have 10,000 troops, you have to really hope that your guys, each guy could take at least two guys or more, So you can win that war otherwise you send a delegation to the other king and say okay how do we make peace here my guys are going to get slaughtered right but looking at it in another way when you when you follow christ you're you are signing up for a war but it's a spiritual battle and let me tell you the battle doesn't end it's it's day after day you have to take up your sword and fight that spiritual battle we wrestle with the world the flesh and the devil and a lot of times we're our own worst enemies we have to take up that sword every day and cut cut the, uh, the sin out of our lives, right? So the bottom line in both is, verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. The bottom line in both is that before you take being a Christian lightly, which many do, you need to decide if you're really prepared to let anything go that may come up, that may be a, a stumbling block or a hindrance. And in verse 34, he says, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The dunghill is a nice way of saying garbage, right? But salt is a preservative. And uh, we've talked about there's there's a chemical reaction that happens when you put salt on a piece of meat and the acids are released and it kills the bacteria. It makes it very uncomfortable for them to live. But Salt is only good for one thing. And if it loses its saltiness, its ability to preserve, it's really not good for anything, but to be thrown out, right? And to be trampled on, as Jesus says in other scriptures. Do we, do we have a saltiness about us? Because the world, just again, look, look at the news. I was watching, I don't even know why I, I look at the news sometimes, but maybe it's a morbid curiosity. There was a story about a woman recently who, a 20 year old woman who had a, a seven month old baby and some nutty lady comes into her house with a knife and says, give me your baby. And the woman tried to fight her off and she slashed her throat and stabbed her and took the baby to sell or whatever. They're still looking for the, uh, the perpetrator. But I mean, pe- people are looking at me in horror, but this is what goes on every day. And it's worse in other countries. This is a sick place to live. We're just passing through here. Do any of you really want to call this your home? And I'm not sitting here saying, you know, we have a death wish. No, we don't. But what I'm saying is that our home is an eternal home. It's an eternal habitation. We're just passing through here because I wouldn't want to... You know, there was a movie, that, many movies, about people who... Uh, you know, fantasy, of course, that couldn't die. They had lived forever. And they just... They, they, they desired to die because they lived centuries and centuries and centuries. And their punishment was to live forever on this earth. And it, it just showed, uh, interestingly enough, over time how you would get weary of living on this earth, not being able to leave it. So really, it's a sentence to have to stay here for eternity. This is not our home. So have we lost our saltiness? Do we meld with the ungodly behaviors of others, or we are preserving factor to others, right? We are preserving influence, because if we're not, we're not useful for the kingdom. So the last heart check here is we see that, again, Jesus, as the great cardiologist, uh, is, is the heart disease so irreversible and hardened that we don 't even respond to the one who formed the heart? Things have gotten so bad throughout this this chapter that the last point is jesus is saying you 're not even responding to your creator anymore that 's how hard your heart is. Kind of reminds me of the pinocchio story and i, I don 't know it that well, but it was maybe a month or so ago uh, my my son wanted to watch it and i he, you know, I, I didn't want to watch it, but he asked me to watch a little bit of it. So I said, yeah, you know, with your kids, you, you, you watch it for a few minutes and then you get up and they don't notice you left. Right. So 10 minutes go by and now I'm into it. <laughs> I'm sitting there. Wow. That's fascinating. You know, the Pinocchio story about, uh, and all these, you can learn so much from children's stories, but basically Geppetto makes Pinocchio and he loves Pinocchio. Right. And, you got the whole thing with him wanting to be real and all that. But he ends up departing from the love he received from Geppetto, which was his his creator in a sense. And he starts getting in with the wrong crowd. He starts walking on the dark side, so to speak. And they go to the... um, He he gets involved with some really bad boys. And they're on this big cart, I still remember. And they're going to this place. I forget what it was called. Some island. I'm sure somebody knows. And it was like a sin island, right? And they're smoking cigars and they're doing all kinds of stuff because, you know, there's not a care in the world. They don't care what their parents think. And little do they know that once they get there, they are trapped. The doors close and they can't escape. They can smoke cigarettes. They're heart content, do all kinds of bad stuff, right? And little by little, they start growing the ears, the donkey ears, and they start getting the teeth. That whole thing. And, you know, it, it's just they, they're on all fours, right? And they become donkeys. And they're all crying. They want to go back to their mommies and daddies. But because of all the sin and all the bad things that they've done, and that desire, they're trapped there. They can't go back now. And now they have to, they, they put them in, it's, it's a horrible story. They, they, <laughs> they put these little boys who become donkeys in boxes and they ship them to the salt mines where they have to stay forever and never seeing their parents again. But, man, that's a great story, don't you think? I think, look, every, everything has a moral of the story, and probably they don't say it outrightly, but I would say this, the moral of the story is, if you sin long enough and that's what you crave, sin will make a jackass out of you. So you can learn a lot from children's stories. But we need to check our hearts. You know, in here we see a lot about, Jesus speaks about compassion. He moves on to self-serving. He moves on to self-centeredness, spiritual laziness, and also the last thing is he challenges us on our commitment to Christ. Where do we stand on these things? It's very important to know because it was important to the Lord. Let's pray. do you think?